Bulls are coming in. Uh, there are some maters, I think we call them around here, right? Maters out there. Uh, there's a few peppers as well that are from our garden. Some of them are a little hot. Uh, some of them have not been as hot, cayenne peppers. So you're welcome to help yourself to any, all of, any and all of that as you feel comfortable. Please take as much of it as you can. If we're the last ones out the door as we usually are, we'll have to take what's left. Uh, we've got enough of our own. So by all means, uh, help yourself to anything that's out there if you'd like to. And we appreciate so much. Even as we studied, if you were tuning in to our lessons as we were posting them online uh, back of, guess, April and May as we were sharing some things on our YouTube page, uh, one of the lessons was on the seed principle. We talked about the great blessing that it is to know that we can plant things and we'll know what we get. And, of course, the connection that that has with God's Word and understanding how the earth works and, and how God has made things. And it's such a wonderful blessing as we even consider uh, how much He has blessed us. We are thankful that you're here this morning, and we want to begin uh, a series of lessons that we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Go back in time with me, if you will, not just one year, not even 50 years, not even 250 years, but all the way back to 13.8 billion years ago. If we could go back that far, then we would find nothing, that nothing except for one single tiny primordial atom, some folks might say. That single atom being a million, billion, billionth of a size of a single atom. And then in a trillion of a trillionth of a second, that dense energetic state that it was in with the four, four fundamentals of forces, gravity, electromagneticism, the strong and weak nuclear forces, and then, boom, and it expands and it cools and it expands and it cools and yada, yada, yada. It's really a wild story. It's quite an interesting theory if you've ever looked at anything like that. It was actually a man that you probably never heard of. His name was George Lemaitre. He was a 1920s Belgian priest who was the first person who is credited with this particular theory. Lemaitre's work in connection with a man who you have heard of probably by the name of Edwin Hubble, he of the famous telescope who expounded upon Lemaitre's work and continued to expound upon this theory through discovery after discovery, which brings us to the point that we are today. But it was actually a English astronomer by the name of Fred Hoyle who was first credited in a 1949 BBC radio broadcast with using the phrase, the Big Bang Theory. Now, I don't really believe that we can go back 13.8 billion years. I guess you might say that that time did exist if you can count or measure time by a God who is and will always be and currently has been, or has been, is, and always will be. He exists in a time continuum that we can't even fathom. But I guess if we could measure time, you might say that 13.8 that billion years ago existed. And it's kind of funny, in reading the, the writings that I was looking at in preparation of this particular lesson, that the writings say things like this. Our current theories haven't yet figured out how. And things like, we would need to know how gravity works on the subatomic level, but we currently don't. And things like, well, it's still unclear what exactly. But the Big Bang Theory, among many, many other theories and thoughts, concoctions and ideas, all of these put together have been on the attack, 
if you will, against the Word of God, the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, for basically all of mankind's existence. There's names we know and, and quotes that you might have heard before. Richard Dawkins, well-known biologist and maybe the most well-known atheist, was quoted in a speech as saying the one gift that he would give to any child is skepticism. Dan Barker, who's a little more current in our time, a well-known atheist, you may know his name, in 2009 he debated our brother Kyle Butt in a a well-known and publicized debate. In his 2008 book entitled Godless, he said this, If we can divert just one young mind, if we can divert just one young mind from going into ministry or from wasting time and money on religion, then we have made the world a better place. But as we said, this is not necessarily new. Even the psalmist in Psalm chapter 14 in verse number 1 said, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If the psalmist knew people like that, and we know people like that, then it's not new. We even go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. You remember Pharaoh there? Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? that I should obey His voice. I do not know the Lord. No, we don't have the market cornered in the year 2020 on atheism and people who do not believe that there is a God. Now, in connection with the fact that we have kind of been moving away from some lessons that have been on the topics of the day, we've talked about the coronavirus, we've talked about racism, and we've, we've discussed those in, in connection with moving away from that. And even in connection with how last week We made the point that there are many false teachers out there who are promoting false ideas. This week, we want to begin a study on the topic of apologetics. Apologetics. Now, when I say that, there's a good chance that you may already have something in your mind, an idea formulated about this word, apologetics. Even as we talked about last week with faith and unbelief and doubt, there's a spectrum. Maybe you you know a little bit about it. Maybe you understand a thing or two about apologetics and you enjoy that particular kind of study. Maybe you're scared and nervous and you don't want to consider it because it's something that maybe you think is beyond your scope. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. You're somewhat familiar and maybe you'd be a little interested in knowing what we mean when we talk about being an apologist or studying apologetics. The one passage that we usually almost always go to in the Bible is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15. You're no doubt familiar with it. In context, Peter is saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of their threats or of suffering, but instead of being afraid, sanctify or set apart in your hearts or the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. Our word here that we're focusing on and that we talk about when we talk about apologetics is this word defense. Apologia or apologia is the, the Greek word that is used here. And it's where we get this idea from. Now, we're going to give you a few definitions to kind of try to understand what we're meaning when we talk about this. And the first comes from this particular verse, which says that apologetics is not an apology, which is what the word sounds like to us, but a defense. Even though it sounds like a, a apologia, apologia, an apology, it's not apologizing. It's not saying I'm sorry, but it is, as it's translated there, a defense or giving an answer. This word is used eight times, some eight times in your New Testament, in the King James Version, in the original Greek New Testament. 
Let's look at two other examples together. Acts chapter 22 and verse number 1. Acts chapter 22 and verse number 1. Again, the context here. Brethren and fathers, Paul is saying, hear my apologia, my defense, my answers before you now. Do you remember what's taking place here in Acts chapter 21 and 22? The man, Paul, is in front of a mob, the Jerusalem mob it may be called in your Bible. Verse 31 says that they were seeking to kill him. That was what their goal was. And in verse 35, it says that when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. That's what Paul is under when we talk about stress. When we talk about what was going through his head as he uses this word and says this, he is under great duress because they are seeking to kill him and he is being carried because of the violence. And so he stops and he requests to speak before the audience, before this gathered mob. And he says, hear my apologia, hear my defense. So he's not apologizing to them. I don't think he's going to get out of the situation he's in, but he wants to give a defense. And he begins one of those great sermons that Paul preaches several times in the book of Acts. Look with me as well in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is one to use this word. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 17. Philippians 1, 17. Paul, again writing, says, There are people who are preaching Christ, but they are doing so for selfish reasons. He writes in this particular context. But there are still others who are doing so out of love. And those folks who are preaching Christ out of love know that I am appointed for the apologia, for the defense of the gospel. Is he saying that I'm here because I'm sorry for the gospel? No, that's not it. I'm appointed, I'm here for the defense, for the answer of the gospel. So as we see this word used, this is what we are talking about. Now... I'll admit up front, I'm by no means an expert myself. I rely heavily upon looking at others' writings and things that people say. I'm not an expert, but I do hope to share with you a few things this morning in regards to apologetics. And then what I'd like for us to do is consider maybe in the next couple of weeks some sermons that you would usually hear, some ideas when you talk about apologetic sermons. We've already touched on a basic definition for apologetics, but let's go a little further with our understanding. The actual, maybe long-form definition of apologetics is this, that it is the art or science, or the art and the science, of defending the Christian worldview. Now, that's the, that's the million-dollar definition there, but the high-dollar definition, but it's the art and science of defending the Christian worldview. And so, this is an educational study. This, we might even say, is an educational discipline that people spend lots of times, lots of their time, writing books and getting information. And lots of really smart people write things that use big words that I don't even understand most of the time. And, and that's what you sometimes mean when you hear the word apologetics. But for maybe not so smart people like myself, I break it down a little bit differently, that it's giving a reason why you believe what you believe. So notice here in the third place that maybe we could say it this way. It's not what, but why. Not what, but why. Very often we as Christians will say things like, we believe that baptism is for the remission of sins. And we do. We believe that. We believe in worshiping God through acapella singing, vocal singing, using our voices only. And we do. 
We believe in prayer. We do. And that's great. But why? Why do you believe that? Why do you show up and sit here in the pew and sing with your voice only? Do you know the answer to that question? Why do you pray to God? Do you know the answer to that question? It's good to know what we do, but it's also good to know why. And so this morning, let's consider as well, when we talk about apologetic sermons, trying to understand what we're meaning, here's what's usually on the list. One thing is the existence of God. We talk about the existence of God, how He exists, how we know that, even some scientific reasons why we can prove that. The historicity of Jesus. Jesus was a human. Jesus was here upon this earth. Can we know that? Is there evidence for that? Is He who He says He was? Now, as you're thinking about this list, you may go back in your mind and you've probably heard some sermons on these types of things before. But this is usually what's on the list. The Bible. The Bible and science. Creation versus evolution. Is the Bible really from God? Is the Bible full of mistakes or contradictions? Can we trust the Bible? Those are usually apologetic type sermons. And even the one that many of us like to consider, the idea of evil, pain, and suffering. Now again, that's the the educational way you hear it. The thought or the theory of evil, pain, and suffering. And it breaks down, of course, to the idea of how can a loving God allow people to suffer? How can a loving God allow, allow a child to get cancer and then die? Those are tough questions. But it's things that we need to be prepared to answer as we encounter people in this world. This morning, as we continue, I'd like for us to consider a few misconceptions. Again, I don't know where you fall on the spectrum of apologetics, but let's consider a few misconceptions together, because it's easy that we have these sometimes, and and it connects with our idea of apologetics. Some misconceptions that we might use to give ourselves a free pass, to just say, well, not me, I'm not worried about it. Number one, I don't know it all. That's what we sometimes say. Well, I don't know it all, so how can I study or know something about apologetics? And the answer to that is, no, you don't know it all. Just like I don't know it all. But you also don't have to. You don't have to know it all on the tip of your tongue and be able to give scientific reasoning against evolution and all of those things just right off the bat. I don't believe that's the case here. In fact, as we have talked about already today, The advent of the internet that allows us to live stream and people to see what's being done here. The internet is a good place and it's a bad place. But when you think about what's out there, there is a treasure trove of information that you can look at to understand about apologetics. Let me give you just a few. I love to share uh, ideas and, and websites that I go to because it's very, very helpful. Number one, Apologetics Press. You're probably familiar with their name. We have books from Apologetics Press here based out of Montgomery, Alabama. Our brothers Kyle Butt, we already mentioned, and Eric Lyons, Dr. Jeff Miller, and Dr. Dave Miller that write for those uh, publications. And I would tell you that Apologetics Press has one of the most detailed websites that you can find. And if you look at it, it's very, very interesting. You could probably spend a whole week looking at the Apologetics Press website. I even heard Eric Lyons, Dr. Lyons, say in a recent podcast that he had done that sometimes he goes to their website to try to remember something that they had written or some information that they had published. It's wonderful. What do you know about dinosaurs? Do you believe that dinosaurs existed? Have you ever had a talk about people with dinosaurs? Because I think many members of the church would say, well, yeah, dinosaurs existed. We find their fossils, but they're not millions of years old, so I don't really know when they were here or where they were or those kinds of things. 
It's a wonderful place to go and research and find information. Number two, In Connection Focus Press is another great website, another great publication. You may be familiar with their magazine, Think Magazine. We get a copy here. I've got many of them in my office. I sometimes move them in there, and you're welcome to come and search through them at any point. I did for this particular lesson. But our brother Brad Harib runs the website and the magazine. Again, their website, you can search for all kinds of articles and information on scientific things, on the Bible, on the existence of God. It's there. You don't have to memorize it, but to be able to find it is very important. I'd even share a third one with you. This is called The Daily Apologist. The Daily Apologist. It's run by a man by the name of Dr. Dean Meadows. He's a brother in Christ. And I've recently become acquainted with his website as well as some of his work. Uh, Dean Meadows is getting into the market on YouTube. And if you go to YouTube, you can search for The Daily Apologist. And just this week, I don't know if it was Friday or if it was Thursday, or maybe even Wednesday, he posted a video, an hour-long video, where he interviewed and talked with an atheist. And it was going to be the beginning of a series for him. Maybe one a week, he's going to sit down and have an hour-long conversation with atheists. And he is trying to keep that relationship open. It's not an argument. It's not a fight. He tries to keep the relationship on good terms so that they can discuss things and point out what they think on both sides. It's very, very interesting to hear someone who is willing to do that because I would be shaking in my boots, my knees knocking to think I could sit down and discuss with an atheist for an hour. But I'm thankful for brothers who can and who are willing to do that. You don't have to know it all. You can look for others who are more knowledgeable and lean on them. Number two, you might say, I'm not a debater. When we think about apologetics and science, we think about debating. And we have to be uh, someone who will debate others. I'm not asking you to debate Bill Nye, the science guy, or any of these others, Dan Barker, or some of these other folks who have had great debates. I'm not a debater either. I've never been in one. But we should have an understanding of evil, pain, and suffering. We said that just a moment ago. We should have an understanding of evil, pain, and suffering. And let me ask you, have you ever stood in a funeral home before? Have you ever stood next to a suffering mother or spouse or someone who is upset and grieving the loss of a loved one? And they say things like, I just don't get it. I just don't understand how a loving God could. It's a perfect time to discuss evil, pain, and suffering. Maybe not in the great debate and apologetic style, but to be able to remind them about what God says about evil, pain, and suffering might be a great time that you could use that. Number three, I get to tell people how it is. That's one of the misconceptions. I'm just going to run them over because I've got the truth, and we sometimes say I'm going to beat them over the head with my Bible. Well, being an apologist still requires kindness. We're familiar with Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 15, speaking the truth in love. Remember our first passage, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. What does it say? Give an answer for the hope that is within you with what? Meekness and fear. You may be armed with the truth, but you can't beat them over the head with it. You don't just get to tell people how it is. You have to do so with kindness. Number four, you might say, well, I won't ever have these conversations. I, I never talk to any about, anybody about those things. Maybe, but maybe not. But it will make you stronger. John, in 1 John chapter 5, in verse number 4, said is that it is our faith that should overcome the world. You know the quote, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It's true in our Christianity. When the going gets tough, the weak sometimes fall away. 
the weak sometimes give up. If we're going to get going, when the going gets tough, we've got to be tough. We've got to be knowledgeable, even if we never have these conversations, especially on a grand level. And then fifth and finally, in regard to these misconceptions, you might say, well, I don't have to. I'm not going to. I won't ever have an opportunity. I don't have to. See 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always. Be ready always to give an answer. That's what we need to do. And so, yes. Now, in the Bible, we do actually have a real-life biblical example. I don't want us to look at for just a quick moment. When you talk about being an apologist, let's look and see if anything that we just mentioned is discussed here in Acts chapter 17. Because we come to Acts chapter 17 and we meet Paul, who is great. I mean, he is wonderful. He is the Apostle Paul and all the wonderful things he did. But we get a real-life biblical example. Notice, first of all, that he is active. Active. In Acts chapter 16, we see that he is waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's waiting, but is he just sitting back twiddling his thumbs? He just kind of kicking back, taking it easy? No. He is actively engaged. Notice it says, Now while Paul waited for them, that Silas and Timothy, in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was wholly or totally given over to idols. Therefore, verse number 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, with the Gentile worshipers, as well as in the marketplace. He's an apologist. And as an apologist, he is active in doing these things. He's having these conversations. But I'm going to go ahead, because I got a little out of order here. I'm going to put both of these up. The second word maybe on your bulletin, if you've got it, is approach. The third word is attitude. But in kind of studying after I'd done the bulletin on Friday, I kind of want to flip these up in regards to the way that Paul, Luke records it for us here about Paul. We're going to notice second of all his attitude here. Look at verse number 18. Then the Epicurean, or certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, encountered him, and some of them said, well, what does this babbler have to say. Now, honestly, most of us would want to respond by slapping him upside the face, right? You're going to call me a babbler? What did he just say about me? What did he just call me? But Paul recognized that the better part here is simply moving on, letting the insult slide by and still keep going. He could have said, well, you know what? I may be babbling, but you're on the broad way to eternal destruction. That's what he could have said. But he decides to let the insult go. His attitude is the right one. And not only did he not respond in insult, but notice verse number 22. He stands later there before the crowd at the Areopagus and among these people. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He doesn't just not insult them back, but he finds some common ground so that he can preach Jesus to them. But notice, again, secondly on your list, but thirdly, notice his approach. Let's continue this idea of looking at finding common ground. Number one, he goes to the Areopagus. He goes to their place. He doesn't say, hey, you guys got to come to me on my turf. He goes to the Areopagus. But number two, notice verse number 23. He says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. The Greeks were afraid to make any god or a god mad. So they basically had a catch-all altar there. And so Paul says, what you worship out of fear, I am now going to proclaim him to you. I am now going to preach this god to you. 
And so verses 28 and 29, as he begins to preach this God to them, he says, for in him, that's in God, we live and move and have our very being. As also, notice, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. You want to be an effective apologist? Paul doesn't jump to Isaiah chapter 53. Paul doesn't go back to the prophecies of Jesus and begin to make this long list for them. Those are good things, and they're very true. But he comes to them and mentions their own poets. They don't care about Hebrew Scripture. So he's going to talk to them about their poets. He's going to find some common ground. Paul knows the culture. He gets an invitation. He begins on common ground, and then he preaches unto them Jesus and the one true God of heaven. What a great example of an effective apologist. Let's conclude with thinking about some things here about why should I care? Why should you care about any of this? Why should apologetics matter to you? Why would we spend 30 minutes this morning talking about it? Number one, because today's world is different. There's no doubt about that. Many more people don't even believe. As I look around the room, I've heard some of you say, well, when I was a young person... Or when I was growing up, everyone went to church services somewhere on Sunday morning. Everyone believed in God. Well, guess what? Not today. The number's not so outrageous. It's not 50% or 90%. In fact, as close as I could find, the number has really only even crept up to about 10% of people who would say that they claim atheism. But it has gone up. It was 8 and maybe even 7 in some of the publications I was looking at. But you will find many more people who will say, I don't even believe in God. So how are you going to have a conversation with someone who says, I don't even believe? How are you going to convince someone to be baptized for the remission of their sins when they say, God, who's God? I don't care anything about God. We need to care and study apologetics because today's world is different. Number two, why should I care? Because this is a real threat to our young people. A very serious and real threat to our young people. And once again, I look around the room and almost everyone here is connected with a young person in some way. Whether there's one still in your household or there are grandchildren that you see fairly often or whatever, it is a real threat to our young people. A 2006, so once again, we talk about times changing. A 2006 study showed that 25%, a quarter, one of every four college professors are professing atheists or agnostics. That's 2006. You want to come forward 14 years and think that number's not gone up some about how many college professors would claim to be atheists? 14 years ago, certainly it's gone up. There have always been atheists. We've already said that. But it was probably less likely to be discussed in the classroom. Once again, many of you may remember discussing science and things in school. You probably didn't hear about atheism, but certainly there are teachers today who would promote it. The Southern Baptists conducted a study a few years ago that said they believed they were losing between 70 and 88% of their young people after one year of college. 70 to 88%. The Barna Group, the Barna Research Group, says that New Testament Christians are losing their young people by about, or New Testament Christians are leaving the church by about 10,000 
per year. Now, certainly those aren't all young people, but they probably make up a good majority of it. Our young people are going to struggle with alcohol, drugs, sexual sins, but there's also a good chance that they'll struggle with unbelief. Are we prepared? Do we care? Number three, here's your chance. I hesitated to even say it. Fake news, right? We all talk about fake news. Why should I care? Well, there's a lot of fake news out there. There really is. Can you defend the truth? Can you speak up when you are seeing something that is patently wrong? Now, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the Word of God. There's a lot of people who will promote false ideas. Are we prepared? Are we ready to handle those things? Number four, I can help the church grow in number through evangelism. Now, certainly I'll help myself grow. We already talked about that. Spiritually, I can help others grow spiritually, but I can help the church grow in number through evangelism. Understand first that apologetics is not a tool to make people believe in Christ. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It doesn't come by science. doesn't come by scientists or an educational study. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's plain and simple. But certainly apologetics can help point the way toward people believing in Christ. I heard it said this way this week in a, in a video that I watched, and I absolutely loved it. When we talk about evangelism, evangelism is usually discussed in terms of sowing and reaping, right? We understand that. The Bible says that. Well, then maybe we should say that apologetics is tilling the soil. I like that. Apologetics is getting the soil ready sometimes so that you can then sow the Word of God and reap Christians. That would be the idea. To be able to defend the Bible will help us as we try to teach people about Christ. Two final thoughts here in the lesson will be yours. When we study and are prepared to discuss these topics with people, what happens? If you're an apologist and you know these things that we began to discuss or these other things that we've listed, and then you study, what happens? Well, let's go back to Acts chapter 17 for just a minute. In Acts chapter 17 and verse number 32, what were the results there? What, did, what happened when Paul was an apologist? Acts 17 and verse 32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some people are going to mock you. They mocked Paul. While others still said, secondly, we will hear you again on this matter. Some people are going to say, that's great. That's interesting. Can we talk about it later? But number three, Paul departed from among them. However, some of the men joined him and believed. Mocked, put off till later, and believed. Sounds like people that we run into today. We need to be prepared to discuss the truth and defend the Bible with people. And I would leave you with the challenge. The challenge for the week. Can you find one person? Do you know somebody that you might have a discussion with? Just beginning a discussion with. I'll tell you this. Have a discussion with somebody about dinosaurs, you're probably going to get their attention. It might lead into something else. If you can discuss in a logical manner what the Bible says about science or about dinosaurs, or about any number of things. I built my faith several years ago when I taught one of the Focus Press books on it to think about those things. It's encouraging to know that you don't have to be afraid of it. A few years ago, I preached a, a summer series lesson, a VBS lesson on science and the Bible, and it was most one of the most faith-building things I'd ever done. Just one lesson. 
by studying what the Bible had to say about disease and about medical issues and about things like that. It's very, very interesting. You can't defend the Word of God and the existence of God and the person of Christ if you are not, first of all, though, a believer. You see, as we conclude our lesson on apologetics, one of the main things that we discuss when we talk about apologetics is the person of Christ. That He was real. That He came to this earth. That He hung on the cross. That He bled and He died for you and for me and for the world. Are you a Christian this morning? If not, why not? Why delay any longer putting your faith in Christ, being added to the church through baptism for the remission of your sins, so that you can begin to live faithfully. You can begin to defend the Word of God with confidence, not with fear. Maybe you're here this morning and in times past you've done that, but you've wandered away. You recognize that maybe you've been weak in your faith. Maybe you've been afraid to defend God and you want to come back to Him. Maybe there's public sin in your life that you need to repent of. We're thankful for these people who are gathered here that we can encourage one another. Whether you need to become a Christian or whether you need to come back to Him, we would gladly assist you now as we stand together and as we sing.